Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. At IKEA, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the gray strandum wing chair was $369, now $299. And the IKEA Plus 365 nine-piece cookware set was $129.99, now $89.99. And hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at ikea-usa.com today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Achtung, achtung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and of course, James Holland. Well, lockdown grinds on, the nation on its knees. What does it have up its sleeve in a time of crisis? Well, we're here to talk about exactly that. James, who are we speaking to today? Today, we have got Andrew Chatterton from CART. And CART is the uh, organisation that single-handedly looks after and manages the history and heritage of the auxiliary units. And the auxiliary units were those amazing men who were there to operate behind the lines should the Nazis have invaded back in 1940 or 1941. Goodness me. Yes. The stay-behinds. The stay-behinds. Well, the interesting thing about it is Britain is the only country to have prepared a resistance movement before it was needed. Gosh. Well, welcome, Andrew. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, My pleasure. uh, My pleasure. I mean, here you are, in a way, staying behind to uh, keep the story of the stay behinds going, because this isn't um, this isn't a sort of headline thing about the Second World War, is it? It's been it's it, I mean, it's been written about in it's been in the public domain for sort of decades, but it's still not like a, a, a first thing people think of when they think of 1940. They think of they think of the home guard. They think of Captain Mannering. They think of pitchforks. They think of people um, uh, drilling with with broom handles, don't they? So what's the story? What, first of all, how did you get uh, get into this? And secondly, what do we know? Well, I'll start with number one, because obviously there's, there's tons <laughs> to talk about. Yeah, so I got into this. I did a, uh, a history degree and I, I did uh, a lot of Second World War stuff. And I read a book a bit later by David Lamp called Last Ditch, which was the first book written in, about the Orcs units and special duties branch in about 1968. Uh, so, and at the time when it was published, the veterans of the AUKUS units, all of whom had signed the Official Secrets Act, were absolutely furious that they were like, "That's really? the one." I've got. I've... You got really? a first edition. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yes. There you go. Uh, so, and they were like, "Well, why did we sign the Official Secrets Act if some? I think he's American. If some American guy can come and just write a book about us all, they were they were furious." Anyway. So I read this book and, you know, I thought I had a good understanding of what Britain was like in 1940. I thought I understood uh, and kind of brought into that narrative, you know, that Alan Allport Shire folk uh, narrative of Britain on its knees and, and, and 
uh, as you were saying, our old men armed with pitchforks and basically just waiting for the inevitable German invasion. And then I read this book about highly trained civilian guerrilla fighters and saboteurs and a spy network and wireless network, the length of the country that was set up in advance of any uh, of, of, of any invasion. And suddenly, I, and, and I was like, well, how did I not know about this? This is absolutely crazy. I've got to see what I can do about this. And Carter had just been set up. Uh, so uh, I volunteered my services and that was like 10 years ago. And uh, now it's a lot, lot more interesting in my day job. So, <laughs> so I, I do this, I do this a lot more. <laughs> Yes, I've fallen into that trap as well. Um, <laughs> the, the secret, lads, is to, to make it your day job. Well, yes, I, well, yeah. yeah. I've just got a book deal, actually, which is, which is very exciting. Uh, oh, and, congratulations. And, and humbling, yeah. So, uh, yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. I've just got to write it. <laughs> um, so, so, I mean, the, it is interesting, isn't it? As James said, that the, the, the British had made, had made plans to, for this resistance um, thing. Um, at what point did they start, um, uh, you know, considering the considering the essentially impossible is that a German invasion would happen, that it would succeed um, or at least landings would succeed and that and that some some sort of resistance thing would be needed? Because, I, um, it, it, you know, in preparation for the chat, I had a look at your website last night and what I was struck by is the stuff you know about is in you don't know really know about the interior counties of the UK, but you know certainly know about the activities in the coastal counties of the UK, because mm. after all, that's that's where it might happen. So Norfolk, Suffolk, Essex, uh, D- Dorset, all sorts of all sorts of places that have stretches of coast, obviously are, are alert to this possibility. At what point did the, when's the first? Is there a manual? When's the first manual from? So it, it all seems well. It's one of those things. It seems to have come from from lots of different sources. So uh, we know that. Eden went down to visit Thorne, who was commanding 12 Corps down in kind of Sussex and Kent area. And he had a he had a chat and it's actually on uh, World at War. Eden was talking about going down to see Thorne and there was no anti-tank guns and no tanks. And it was all looking a bit bleak. But during that conversation, he spoke to Thorne and Thorne had been military attache in Berlin in the in the 30s. And rather ironically, it seems like the uh, part of the inspiration for the auxiliary units came from Germany because Thorne got to know about the German peasantry militia who were uh, for centuries and centuries had kept caches of weapons hidden away and when the uh, an in- foreign invader would invade their land they would pick up their weapons and, and fight them but but be on home home yeah. turf and know, know their local area so well, which thought, later becomes the inspiration later becomes the inspiration for the Volkssturm, doesn't it basically at, yeah. right at, right at the uh, at the end exactly. uh, uh, f- for Goebbels and Co okay sorry so 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 th- uh Eden spoke to Churchill and Churchill, I mean, this is such a Churchill idea. It's, you know, it's right up his street. It's perfect. <laughs> so uh, Churchill spoke to Ismay and then Ismay had a chap in mind who was working for uh, military intelligence research called um, called Peter Fleming, who who is the brother of Ian Fleming, creator of James Bond. So he asked, and Fleming is a, is a fascinating chap in his own right. He'd been an uh, interwar explorer, he'd been to China, he'd been to Brazil looking for some lost explorer. Uh, he'd probably worked for MI6 while he was out in those countries and he was a big believer in the effectiveness of guerrilla warfare so this isn't your traditional set piece battle kind of British army approach this is dirty guerrilla fighting so very much against that vision we have of of, of Britain at that time so Fleming starts these prototype patrols in Kent which is obviously a key area uh, prone to invasion Uh, and he recruits local farmers he has uh, stacks and stacks of explosives, loads of weapons that just aren't available to the 
certainly not to the LDV and in some cases to the regular army as well. And he uh, he starts to train these guys. And it soon becomes really apparent that this could be a really effective force. Not in... This isn't the French resistance. This isn't fighting an occupying force. This is just slowing down a German advance. So, um, and we'll talk about it a bit later, but they had enough rations for two weeks and that was their life expectancy and they, and they knew it. They, this was essentially a two-week suicide mission to do as much damage to an invading force as possible. So it soon becomes apparent that uh, this could be really effective and they bring in Gubbins, who later obviously is really instrumental in, in SOE, and he is brought in to extend these patrols the length of the country. And as you said, Al, it is mainly on the coastal areas. So it's, it's, it's from the Orkneys and then yeah. down the east coast of Scotland, uh, northeast, east coast, southeast corner, south coast, southwest and south Wales. They didn't see any threat from, from Ireland. So, so there was nothing really from Monmouthshire up um, right. until you got to Scotland. So, and there was nothing internally, uh, although <laughs> it seems like there more layers of secrecy are being, are being taken down. And there's things called, thing called Section 7, which we can maybe talk about another time, which seems to be individual saboteurs and, uh, and wireless operators um, operating in towns and cities and in, more in the centre of the country after occupation. Anyway, that's right. by the by. Um, so his auxiliary <laughs> units were extended out and he, uh, he recruited, Gubbins recruited intelligence officers, uh, many of whom he'd fought with in, in Norway with the independent companies. And they were given counties they had a uh, particular affiliation with. And they were sent to these vulnerable counties to set up, to set up patrols. Now, at the same time, and, and it seems purely coincidentally, uh, there was another chap called Lawrence Grand who worked for SIS, so MI6. Uh, and he was part of Section D, which had been set up, I think, in the late 30s to find alternative ways of fighting uh, an enemy. And he'd yeah. set up uh, the Home Defence Scheme, which is essentially the same as what Fleming was doing in Kent. So arming civilians, leaving caches of weapons everywhere, putting explosives in bridges without telling anyone, all that kind of stuff. Um, slight, he was a real maverick, Grand. And eventually it was combined with Gubbins' uh, military intelligence research group, and which then yeah. became the auxiliary unit. So it came from a few sources, um, but essentially the idea was a group of highly trained guerrilla civilians uh, who could just bite the tail of an invading army and just slow them down a bit to give the regular army time to regroup uh, and to counterattack or just to slow it down. And, and they, you know, what they saw in the Low Countries and France was just essentially a German army speeding through without anything, uh, without anything stopping them, the regular army being forced yeah. back. And what this was designed to do was just literally to allow them to go over the top of them and then come out at night and destroy ammo and fuel dumps to destroy yeah. railways. Yeah, uh, destroy... it's, 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 it's about destroying the supply lines, isn't it? So, yeah, know, it's so about... The spearhead yeah. charges off, but it doesn't have its kind of long tail. That's, that's the exactly. point behind it. It's about, supply, it, about destroying that supply chain, but also causing as much chaos as possible. So taking out German officials, taking out British collaborators. Um, yeah. And we, we can talk about it later, but, but some of the first targets would have been, uh, would have been British civilians. Uh, for, for the exuding, it wouldn't have been anything to do with the Germans. See, this is what one of the things I kind of love about this is is, is that there is, there's always been this this sort of. I suppose a large part of it is down to kind of 
uh, um, sort of old cartoons like the sort of very well alone one, and and but also kind of Dad's Army subsequently, and and so on. But there's this sort of idea that we were kind of, sort of nice, and that we were kind of sort of soft and fluffy against these sort of you know, martial automatons from from Deutschland. Yeah, and actually we're we're total ruthless bastards, aren't we? I, you know, we kind of flatten completely. cities, and and we know we're going to kill lots of civilians, and we kind of earmark. Uh, British civilians to be taken out, assassinated by auxiliary squad by, by auxiliary units. I mean, it, it's yeah. it's a very different, it's a very different sort of Britain to the kind of the narrative, isn't it? And obviously, that's all tied. That's all tied in the fact that we're the kind of sort of you know fighting for freedom and democracy and all the rest of it. But 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 obviously, even if you are doing that, you still need to be completely ruthless in the prosecution of war. And that's what really got me into it, is that, is that it goes against everything that I thought I knew about Britain at this time. It go, I'll give you some examples. So, for example, a, a patrol in, in Cornwall were, were digging their operational base, so their secret underground bunker, uh, in, a, in, a, in a copse, and above them were an elderly couple in a cottage who would wave at them as they were digging this, uh, digging this base. The first people that this patrol, as soon as the Germans came into the area, the first people these patrol would have to kill was this elderly couple so as soon as the germans came into their town or village this patrol would go up there slit this elderly couple's throats and then go back into the base because what it was all about is they only they realized they only had two weeks maximum time to, to do maximum damage so anything that gave them a bit more time to ensure to to, to allow them to do that they would do so Part of the recruitment, so the intelligence officers would would, would recruit uh, a patrol leader in a particular area which had good targets. The patrol leader then would be completely responsible for for recruiting his own patrol. So he, because it was so secret, he would recruit uh, friends or relatives or colleagues, people who had an intimate understanding of the of the countryside around them, uh, could live off the land. So farmers, farm workers, gamekeepers. We've got lots of examples of gamekeepers recruiting poachers into units because yeah. they had, yes. they knew they uh, knew that, that makes they real knew. sense doesn't it that yeah. makes perfect sense because it's it's the man of the land you know countrymen they're kind of brought up to kind of be able to read the landscape and actually reading the landscape knowing every inch of the ground that's such an advantage over your enemy who's coming there for the first time who's probably never been there ever before yeah. in their life you know well but, doesn't have a map and doesn't have and a map even, and all those sort of yeah, things i mean yeah. you know so you just you, you, you know and that they're, they're Countrymen are sort of tend to grow up with kind of sort of you know rifles and shotguns and sort of stuff that, that sort of stuff. So they're going to be able to learn how to you know they they're, they're good shots, you know they're good with their hands, all that kind of stuff. All these sort of things are incredibly important and useful if you're if you're a kind of you know trying to do these um, this kind of resistance sabotage work. Exactly, and that and that's another you know my original point was that they recruited family family and friends and but if the going back to that ruthlessness point, if they're on patrol. They blow something up. They come back, and one of them is is injured. <clears throat> this, uh, the rest of the patrol is obligated to shoot that patrol member if they couldn't get him back to the operational base, because <laughs> because God. they couldn't they couldn't afford him to fall into enemy hands and for him to point out where yep. their secret underground base is, because that would reduce the amount of time they'd have to do maximum damage. And equally, the secrecy went to so most of these guys were, as I said, farmers and, and farm workers. So guys in reserved occupations. So this isn't Dad's army. This isn't old guys. These are like 35, 40 year olds who are young and fit and, 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 and active. But equally, most of them had families. Most of them had wives and, and, and kids. And they didn't, they didn't say anything to their, to their family. So if the Germans had invaded, as soon as the Germans had got anywhere near their, their, their village, these guys would have just disappeared. And their families would not have known where they'd gone. 
they would have just disappeared out of sight. And if you think about that, you know, there is no more dangerous period of time for a family than an invading army entering your village. And at that point, yeah. you would have to go. <laughs> you would have to disappear without telling them where you were going. And so leave them completely well, on that- their own. And that would surely draw suspicion, wouldn't it? I mean, I mean, there's all the all the all the ramifications, all the all the um, implications of all of this. Who's paying for this? Is the is my, you know, uh, uh, when, right when you start talking about explodes, Fleming's hiding explosives and weapons. Where's he getting them from? Who's paying for it? How come he can buy them and the army can't? Um, what on earth's going on? How is he able to short circuit normal procurement? And, and where's the money coming from? I think essentially it's Churchill. Uh, so right. we've got we've got documents from the from the archives of of Churchill sending notes wanting to be kept up to date with with how the auxiliary units were, were going, how they're being formed, how they're being trained. We've got one uh, note on which he's he's got an update and he's scribbled on it. All of these men must have revolvers. Make it make it make it so get it get it done. So all members yeah. of the auxiliary units had like a Smith and Wesson, which obviously the Home Guard was still still faffing about with wooden mock rifles. It, yeah. it, it, you know yeah. these were prioritised, and they got like the Thompson submachine gun before the regular army. They got they got weapons, explosives. They had explosives coming out of their ears. At Fleming's house, called the Garth in Kent, he had his living room was stacked with boxes of explosives right next to a huge roaring fire it was like a health and safety nightmare there was explosives everywhere and and you know they were they were prioritized certainly above the home guard and and also above above the regular army at all and it it came right from the top churchill because it's such a churchill idea i suspect yeah but, but but he took a real interest in 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 what these guys and over the years, it's been called Churchill's Secret Army and, and things like that, as though he'd come up with the idea. He probably claimed to, but he didn't. But he, he definitely took a, a, a real interest in this and prioritised them. And that's how they managed to get hold of all this equipment. Uh, you know, and, and we talk about uh, Thompson submachine guns and, and uh, explosives and, and all that kind of But, but their, their main weapon uh, was the Fairbairn, Fairbairn Sykes uh, fighting knife, because... They weren't about, as we've talked about, they weren't about taking on the German army head on in, in, a, in a battle. Their aim was to get to the thing they needed to blow up. So if they could, yeah. they don't want to get into a, into a, into a shooting match with, with, with a German sentry. They want to come up behind no. him, slit his throat, mutilate his body, leave him for his comrades to, to find him and go up and blow up, blow up the planes or the, or, the, or the railway tracks or the bridge or, or whatever it might be. Uh, so their main weapons were, were silent, silent weapons. So lots of them had like homemade knuckle dusters and, uh, and, and homemade knives. And it was really dirty, <laughs> dirty fighting. They were, they were taught, you know, because I, as I said, how to mutilate the body of a German sentry just to scare the living daylights out of the rest of the comrades. And as you said, because they're in a, they're in a strange country, these guys are coming up at night. This isn't like a daylight attack. They would, they would stay in their underground bunker during during the day and then come out at night. So these guys are in a strange country. They have no idea where they are. It's pitch black. And then suddenly guys are appearing out of nowhere. They were obviously taught stalking so they could approach silently and suddenly neck, 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 uh, throat slit and, uh, and blood, <laughs> blood everywhere and a mutilated body for the camera. Yeah. Well, actually, the, 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 the best way to, to kill someone is to stab them in the, uh, in the kidneys. Apparently the pain is so intense you just die instantly and you, just, and you die noiselessly. This is all kind wow. of put in the in the Fairbairn book. Um, is it called um, uh, Hard Fighting? I think it is. Isn't that the, yeah. the book um, yeah. by Fairbairn? And um, 
It's a fascinating book, you know, this sort of idea that you would sort of teach unarmed combat. It's kind of the first time ever, as far as I'm aware, in the British Army uh, and within British Army units. And um, it's again, it's 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 another indication of just how ruthless they're prepared to be. You know, and obviously this is the kind of stuff that's taught to Batsui people and to the commandos and all the rest of it, but presumably also to the auxiliary units as well. Yeah, well, actually, that's, you know, and that's obviously we didn't get invaded, thank God, but... This is where I think that the auxiliary units have their impact because the training that they had in the kind of summer of 1940 from people like Fairburn and Sykes kind of set the way for SOE and SAS. So as the as the war went on and the and the uh, threat of invasion kind of diminished, these guys, uh, some of them joined the SAS directly from the from the auxiliary units because because their level of training was so high and so perfect for that. Some joined SOE that that they kind of set that standard very, very early on in the war as to as to what this would look like for for the French resistance or SOE or SAS, you know, that 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 type of guerrilla fighting. Um, so they, they 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 had a they had a major impact on the war. But they but they're, so their their role their role mutates basically from exactly. the, the stay behind thing from a defensive to an Gosh, offensive. I've... Yeah, yeah, fascinating. Yes, because because I, I you know I've um I've been having a little look on your your website and I've. The end of October, I was walking through Dorset, and there was a uh, there was a memorial to uh, an auxiliary unit. And I think it was the one from Langton Matravers, down near sort of near between Corfe and, and Swanage. And um, your the the cart website is just an absolute absolutely full of of incredible information. But it's got the patrol members here for the Langton Matravers uh, auxiliary units, and you know I'm looking at it. Sergeant Frederick White, he was a master baker. Yeah, you've got Corporal Charles Smith Coleman, who was a navy driver, roadstone quarryman. You've got Private Nelson Burt, another quarryman. Um, Morris Dallinger, who's a uh, shopkeeper and then aircraft fitter, another quarryman, a baker, cake maker. Um, Headley Lander is a farmer, and then an, another stone miner. Because there's a big sort of it's big sort of slate mines and things down there, isn't there? And and limestone mines and what have you. Um, amazingly sort of eclectic bunch, really. Um, yeah. But they all seem to finish on the third of December, nineteen forty-four. So I'm guessing that's a significant moment. So they they were stood down officially in November. Yeah, November forty-four. Um, and <laughs> at at that point, they got a letter saying. Uh, Thanks, chaps, for your service. You were great. You're not going to get any public recognition. <laughs> they got, they got, they got nothing. <laughs> they got a, uh, they got a, a small lapel badge, um, which is often, quite often, what families find in granny's button drawer, and that's the only thing they have to prove that they had, uh, that their family uh, member was was part of the auxiliary units. Um, but Andrew, why would you do that? Why would you insist on keeping it secret after? after I don't know, and this is really. In- this is really interesting because, and this is the another interesting point is why we've got the names, because this is a highly secret organisation. How the hell have we got all the names? And the answer yeah. is that they were all held in the National Archives in 1943. Someone went round and listed all of then the existing members of the auxiliary units and quite a few of their addresses. Now, why? Why would you do that? Of a of a highly secret. Obviously, the threat of invasion had pretty much passed then, but. But still a strange thing to do. My only thing, the only thing I can think of and why they kept it secret after the war is they thought these chaps might be quite useful in some yeah. future conflict, whether it's with Russia or whatever it might Cold be. These, the, yeah. yeah, these guys are now really, really highly trained uh, guerrilla and sabotage fighters. So, so let's 
let's keep a record of where they are. Uh, let's keep them secret so they don't go around telling everyone of what they can do. Um, and and let let's you know just in case something happens and we can we can we can get. I mean, that's my personal thought. I can't think of any other reason why you would list all their names and addresses. No, but 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 also well also that that they when they're doing the listing of names and addresses, they they haven't made up their minds about what they're going to do about these people at the end of the war, have they? And at the end of the right. war, you do get a political distancing from some of the more um uh uh you know the Churchill's. Churchill immediately holding Dresden at arm's length at the moment that raids happened. And, and, and his cooling on the bomber command effort, I think, is an example of that, of that sort of thing of... Because as James says, you know, if you're fighting for freedom and peace and you've essentially adopted the enemy's methods of, you know, or perceived methods of slitting people's throats and... and it's, you know, I mean, what you're talking about here is terror cells. If you're the, if you're the invading force, what you're talking about here is insurgent terror cells. Exactly right. Um... On a cell network system, so no one knows about anyone else, so they can't inform on anyone else that they're killing. They're super motivated if they're expected to kill each other in the event of an emergency, yeah. and so on. Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, maybe maybe after the war, you don't want to admit to having done any of that because it makes you look, it makes you look um, uh, bad. Yeah, well, <laughs> and I think yeah. that's exactly put a point on it. That, that and that's another reason why these guys didn't talk about. It. So some some units were issued with sealed envelopes of British civilians they would have to assassinate as soon as the Germans came into their area. So Germans would enter the town or village. These guys would disappear to their operational base. So a disguised bunker with a, uh, with a hatch that's flushed to the surface of the ground that could be opened by what looks like pulling a tree root and it would just pop up and swivel round or you drop a marble what looks down at looks like a rabbit hole and it'd roll down into the bunker. So the guy at the chaps know that who's, who's at the top and open it up. Um, so they'd be in their bunker and they'd have a sealed envelope. And in, the, in that envelope would be a piece of paper with the names of British civilians and officials they would have to go and assassinate immediately. Uh, so that might be the local chief of police who would have had, yeah. uh, had to have gone through their names to make sure they didn't have a criminal record in order to allow them to join the auxiliary units. He wouldn't have known they would join the auxiliary units, but he would have seen this group of men's names together. So he would have to be assassinated yeah. immediately. The intelligence officer, the poor chap who went round gathering all these guys together, organising patrols, telling them where, you know, He's go. places to dig their bunkers. He'd have to go because he knew where every patrol was, where every bunker was and, and every member of the patrol. So the officer who got them together would be on their list as well. It would to be anyone who... Cell, be, to protect the cell system. God, amazing. Exactly. To, to give them maximum time to do maximum damage. I suspect the intelligence officer would be intelligent enough to know that he was probably on the list. <laughs> Uh, yes, and, and what he would have done about it, I don't know. But you know, anyone who'd accidentally, as we said, stumbled across their their underground bunker, anyone who was asking too many questions, um, it's those names would have been, you know, quite. We suspect that the first victims uh, of the auction units would have been British civilians, which yeah. is which is wow. remarkable and ruthless and very un-British. <laughs> well, or, or well, or is he done British, or is he well, done yeah, actually, yeah. you know? We are we're, we're revealed. Our society revealed to what it truly, truly um, uh, is in time in time of war. Because I, because after all, I mean, I, I you know, uh, and uh, to, to be a little tangential here, some of the problem of digesting what happened during the Second World War, you know, I mean, especially, especially for instance, area bombing. To, to mention that again, is that you you know we've been reduced to the enemy's level. That we've taken up their methods to defeat them, and of course. Churchill and, and the people around him have an appreciation that that's exactly what you've got to do because there's a because there's a war on. 
And it's since the war that because after all we need to we you know we're the good guys we we yeah. wouldn't do a thing yeah. we wouldn't do a thing like firebomb a city except we did you know several times yeah. and the, the, and this fits I think this fits into this. However, you do on the other hand have the glamour of underground bases, and I want to know. I want to know more about underground bases. Anything that, you know, sounds Heath Robinson, that you roll a marble down a rabbit hole. And it's, yes. I mean, this is and particularly Indiana ones Jones. underneath outdoor privies. That's the one I want to hear yes. about. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. Oh, so that's us, a good one. Who, that... who designs these? Who builds them? I mean, because again, you've got, surely there's a, there's a, there's a bunch of engineers who are going to be murdered as soon as the, as soon as the balloon goes up because they know about these bases and so on. Yeah. So, so, uh, just re- sorry, really quickly going back to my point about the lists yes. and, and the ruthlessness. The, re- the other reason they kept quiet was because they still lived in the same village. And if they're after the war, they're in the pub and the, their mate, the policeman, comes in, who two years ago, they were ordered to slit his throat in the invasion. That's a really awkward conversation. And you are, you are, <laughs> you are going to keep, you are going to keep quiet about that because, because... <laughs> That's not that's not that's not something you're going to bring up, and that's the reason they, they most of them kept quiet. They signed the Official Secrets Act. They were they were ordered to kill people in their village, uh, and and also they didn't think they'd done anything because they weren't called upon. Anyway, uh, yeah, operational bases. <laughs> um, operational bases were initially dug by the patrols themselves, but unless you had a very specific set of skills within your patrol, they weren't usually very successful. Like breathing underground is quite difficult, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So eventually, by kind of late. 40, early 41, they brought in Royal Engineers to, to dig these bases. And as you said, out, you know, what they didn't want to do, I'm in Devon, for example, they didn't want a Devon-based Royal Engineer group to come and dig all the bases in Devon. So some right. a, a Royal Engineers from Northumbrian or, or from Newcastle, wherever it might be, would come down, dig all the bases in Devon and then leave again. So if the Germans did invade this area, they couldn't just grab hold of the Royal Engineers who built the, built the but, bases. But, but how do they hide that? I mean, you know, d- digging an underground base is... is... You know, so it's, it's quite, quite often hard to be kind of discreet. <laughs> yeah, it is. Quite often the um, the bases were built on the land of one of the patrol members, so they were mainly, as I said, farmers and farm workers. So they had access to lots of land. Uh, they used yeah. to. So does that mean discuss... they don't have to kill all their family as well of the person that they were? I mean, they were on potentially. Sorry, darling. Uh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> I've got a two week job to get on with. Um, yeah. So they would also. Uh, Say it was a uh, a, a unexploded bomb, or they were digging a, a anti aircraft battery, uh, but they would basically do it very very quickly as well. So so they'd be kind of gone dig and and, and be gone within within a matter of days. And these are, as I was describing, that they're quite uh, sophisticated, and the levels of ingenuity are are ridiculous. So the 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 basic. Um, uh, outline of a of a bunker is, as I say, a, a, a hatch of some kind, completely flush to the floor, often covered with debris. Uh, you, you you know, the ones that are still in existence, we have to be taken to because if you could be walking around a forest for for for, for weeks without finding these things, yeah, and then and then you'd find the way into the hatch. So as I said, either that is a a, a patrol member dropping a marble down a rabbit hole, or or pulling up a tree <laughs> root that would either. Uh, automatically bring the hatch up or it would ring a bell in the in the bunker below uh, or it'd be a uh, you stamp on the top and the hatch would pop up and swivel around and then once the hatch is open you go down a ladder uh, into the bunker and usually you'd be faced with a blast tool 
So if the Germans had somehow discovered where your bunker was and managed to open the hatch and dropped a grenade down, it would give the guys in the main chamber a chance to, to, to get away. So there's a blast wall into the main chamber, which is essentially, it looks like a big Anderson shelter, really. There are usually kind of six bunks there, uh, a, a water tank, uh, a, 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 enough room for kind of storage of, of food, um, sometimes a kitchen. Obviously, cooking isn't ideal if you're trying to, you know, stay away from the enemy yeah. because of smell and smoke. So they would funnel the chimney up a disguised hollow tree so the smoke would disperse at the top of the tree line um, to, to, to allow to allow, uh, allow them to do that. There'd be some kind of Elson uh, chemical toilet, which I imagine after two weeks would be pretty grim. And then at the at the end, there's usually an escape tunnel. Um that would give them a chance to get away had the Germans got in the front. But essentially, uh, most of them knew that if the Germans had found your bunker, you were you were pretty much done. Oh, they and do the, sound the utterly ingenious. Only there. Oh, they're, yeah. they're incredible. They are, yeah, incredible. And, and you know, we there's, there are, and it's testimony to the way they were built that um, a lot of them have obviously collapsed or, 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 or blown up, but there's still so many still intact that you can, that you can walk into. How many are there? I, oh well, I, I think I think we probably know twenty, thirty, something like that. That are still there's wow. one just up the road from me in in a place called Newton Poppleford, which is a great name in mm. itself. But that it, that's that's still intact. And you walk into the cops where it is, and you're like, you, you can't see it. You just can't see it. And then there it is. There the the. So where's the one with the room. underneath the outdoor privy? Because I love yeah, the Kazi. So, where's the one? Uh, yeah, the the, the amazing Kazi. That um, so it's a t- it's a t- it's an like Joe says, it's an outdoor privy. So it's a sort of, you know, it's a it's a you'd think it's a water closet for a gamekeeper or something. Although why he'd want one when he could just crap in the bushes, I don't know. <laughs> but the but the but the um there it is and. Take us through the design of that because this is the most extraordinary thing. So this is slightly different. This is this is a bunker for the special duties branch, which I'm not sure we'll get time to talk about today. Which was the highly secret, uh, even more secret than the auxiliary units, uh, civilian spies and wireless operators. So they would train. Uh, so these aren't like farmers; these are elderly people. These are doctors, vicars, teenagers who could just stay put in their village, watch the German army go through their village. They would then be really highly trained in recognising units in formation, weapons, direction of travel, vehicles. They would then pass all this information on via runners and dead letter drops. So there's an example where there's a gate with a horseshoe on. If the horseshoe is is facing upwards, there's no message. If it's facing downwards, there is a message. And it's in a secreted in a um, false gate bolt, which you can then pull out and the message is, is, is inside there. These goes on messages and it eventually end up with a civilian wireless operator uh, who would be. So we've got examples of vicars with wireless sets in pulpits, uh, publicans with with wireless sets in in, in the roof of their um, pubs, uh, farmers operating out of a chicken shed, which you open the door of the chicken shed. It's just chickens, but then there's a false wall at the end and the guys at the end operating his wireless set from there. They would then be sending these. Uh, this information onto ATS girls who are in bunkers very similar to what the auxiliary units were in, uh, and then they would pass it on to high command. So the, that's all about again taking away the confusion that was the Blitzkrieg, with no one knowing where the German army are, which direction they were travelling in, how many there were. It's taking away all that confusion. Anyway, so the so the outside privy is in a in a house, uh, well not in a house, outside a house uh, on the Devon Dorset border, uh, 
And this was the bunker built for a civilian wireless operator. So uh, you'd open the door of, 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 of the privy. It just looks like a normal, a normal outside privy. Uh, and then just outside the door is a, is a small kind of water meter uh, uh, on, the, on the ground. You'd open up, the, open up the, the, the small door of that. And there's a key inside which you turn. You go back to the privy and that allows you then to, to pull up the whole of the whole of the system so the whole of the toilet would 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 lift up and underneath the toilet was a ladder going down into a bunker you'd go down the bunker uh, go down the ladder into the bunker and there you're just in a what looks like a really weird and so for some reason disguised uh, bomb shelter uh, until uh, you turn a clothes hook on a shelf which then opens up a false wall which reveals where the uh, wireless operator would have been sending these messages. And he would have got the messages through, so the, the, the spies or, or, or uh, observers would have taken down uh, the, the, the information of the German army passing through their village, as I said, passed on by messenger. The last messenger in the line would put the message, the, the coded message, in a split tennis ball. And in the hedge, just outside, uh, on the border of the house, was a... Was a uh, was a what looked like a tree stump in the middle of the of the hedge, but the top swivelled round, so you could swivel around the top of this tree stump. Amazing. Put your put your tennis ball with your uh, with your message in in it. It would then roll down into the bunker uh, directly to <laughs> next to where the guy was operating his wireless set. He would take that message and 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 send it out. And again, these guys all signed the official secrets act. We know you know very little about this but but the point of that kind of double chamber once you've got underneath the toilet is that that even if the germans got to that stage he could he could be uh continuing to send messages right until the last moment that false wall gave him an extra you know couple of minutes to be sending messages um uh, whilst the whilst the germans are figuring out how to how to get here in but the levels of ingenuity are ridiculous are ridiculous well ridiculous. it is quite sort of james bond-esque isn't it james bond villain all these kind yeah. of sort of secret walls and all the rest of it and i suppose you know the connection's an obvious one isn't it with peter fleming to ian fleming exactly to, right you know ian fleming caught up in all that stuff as well so you can sort of see see the, the how it get, got to sort of all these devices in in the james bond novels but yeah. it does seem absolutely extraordinary. I mean, I mean, you were saying that sort of, you know, after the invasion scare was over, they went from the kind of, you know, of being on the defensive to being on the offensive. But, but seriously, what what are they doing from kind of sort of, let's say, the end of the Blitz in the middle of May nineteen forty one until November nineteen forty four? I mean, what 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 is the point? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, they, uh, it's quite interesting. I, they 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 kept them going. Um, I mean, right near the end, levels of secrecy were were dropped, and they were having kind of inter unit competitions and things like that. I think it was just they're in reserved occupations anyway, most of them. I think it was just a way of keeping them enthused. I think they thought it was a bit of a waste sending them to the home guard because the level of training would, was so superior. Uh, they they couldn't do a lot else with them, I think. And it was, they were just a useful, as you said before, a useful group of guys to keep enthused, to keep highly trained, uh, and, and and to keep on board. That I, as, as the war went on, the regular army tried to take some control of it as they learnt about the auxiliary units, and they tried to introduce like square bashing into <laughs> into the training, which didn't go down <laughs> particularly well. If but, with but Andrew, guys. is there more? I, I wonder whether a sort of more, you know, is is there evidence of, of the auxiliary units sort of being, you know, some of these guys who were, you know, among the best of them? Is there um, 
Are there any examples of them being taken off to kind of sort of help the commandos do training or, or whipped out and becoming instructors and this kind of thing? I think I think there's so so in each um, in each county there was a small one patrol of regular soldiers who were who were there to train the auxiliary units in that particular area. Um, and quite a few of those guys, and they would have acted as a patrol had the Germans invaded, even though they, you know, they weren't civilians. Quite a few of those guys, as the war went on, were taken out and they were training SAS and they were training SOE and they were training commandos, right. those, those regular soldiers. Not so much the civilians, but certainly, certainly those regular guys. We have to take a short break right now. We're talking to Andrew Chatterton about the Stay Behinds. Hello, I just want to let you know about a new podcast, Chalk Talk the podcast of the Chalk Valley History Festival. We've been plundering the archives of the last decade of Chalk Valley History Festival talks, and what a joy it's been to realise the extraordinary depth and breadth of speakers and subjects we've enjoyed during the festival's first ten years. From prehistory to modern times, from British to world history, social history, politics, wars, economic and scientific history, and even the history of art. And what an array of historians and speakers – From household names and war veterans to leading professors in their field, politicians, journalists, stars of stage and screen and even sporting and music legends and from all around the world. Chalk Talk is available from our website www.cvhf.org.uk where you can also find much more besides or from wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. We're talking to Andrew Chatterton about the stay-behinds and all sorts of other skullduggery. Yeah, because, um, you know, you just suddenly realise you've got these, you know, hundreds of people who are extremely four, well-trained. Four and a half knowledge, thousand. Four and a half thousand. Okay, so you've got yeah. four and a half thousand well, there we go. And, and people who are extremely well-trained, who, whose knowledge could have been incredibly useful. And it, and, it, and it's it's weird, because I feel like, I, I agree, it, we haven't seen much evidence of of them being taken out, particularly other than the regular guys, and that, and and it's it's also the levels of secrecy just seem to be ridiculous. So, for example, the special duties branch, which we just talked about, had no idea about the auxiliary units, and the auxiliary units had no idea about the special duties <laughs> branch, even though the information that the special duties branch w- was gathering would have been completely useful, incredibly useful, so useful yeah, to the yeah. auxiliary units. There was no connection there. Um, there is one. There is one exception to that of a just very quickly of a uh, an auxiliary unit member patrolling his local area, finding a hatch of what he recognises as an operational base, uh, knowing that it was a bit too near his own operational base to be to be a to be another patrol. <laughs> he goes down the ladder and is confronted by an ATS girl pointing a revolver at his, at his head because this is actually a special duties <laughs> branch bunker, and and uh, they you know neither of them. All she knows is this heavily armed guy in denims has just got into her bunker all he knows is this is woman apparently sending messages via wireless set there's lots of confusion eventually they agree not to shoot each other um and uh and thank god they did because later they got married isn't that isn't that uh, <laughs> no yeah yeah isn't that remarkable That's brilliant. Uh, um but yeah so the yeah it's it's really interesting that these guys are so useful and that's why i was saying i think that's why they had the the list of them, just because they were such a useful resource, but they—I don't think they were tapped into enough. And the levels of training were were remarkable. They they trained at a place called the headquarters of the auxiliary units, and the training centre was a place called Coles Hill House, near uh, in the village or hamlet really of Coles Hill near Highworth, near which is near Swindon. 
And, and that's where your that's where your name cart comes from, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. So these guys, uh, again, the levels of secrecy were, were were really high. They were just sent a letter saying, "You you have to come for training. Get a train to Highworth, which is the nearest town, and go to the local uh, post office." So these two or three from a patrol would arrive from all over the country, all from Scotland, from ever, and um, turn up to this post office where they'd have to say a password to the uh, elderly and rather cranky postmistress named Mabel Stranks. Mabel would then go out the back, phone up Coles Hill House and say, I've got another lot for you. They'd send a, a truck uh, round, drive a convoluted route back to Coles Hill House. So by the time these guys got to the house, they'd have no idea of where they are. Um, there's a great story that apparently Mabel kept... Uh, Montgomery came to visit and she kept Monty... Uh, waiting for for an hour or so because she wasn't sure of his credentials <laughs> so monty was sitting in the post office in highworth waiting <laughs> waiting for this truck to be because mabel strengths the postmistress wasn't quite sure about him um anyway they got to uh they got to coles hill house and these guys had you know the highest level of training they had uh german tanks there planes there that they could expl- uh, practice placing explosives on they practiced digging bunkers they were trained in silent killing it was all and it was in the middle of nowhere so you could get away with kind of blowing up stuff with not attracting too much right. attention um but yeah the the and this training was was of the highest standard and and um and, and uh, as i said I, I just feel like it was these guys were generally at tapped untapped at the end of the war as i said all i say like 70 percent uh went to the grave without telling anyone, without telling their, no, their yeah. wives. Um, yeah. We've got an example. So the way we certainly, not so much now, because obviously uh, most of them have gone, although we just, we've just had a piece in the Telegraph and a 96-year-old has come forward uh, who's still alive, uh, which is just, Amazing. Uh, just remarkable. Um, but <laughs> uh, kind of you know, seven, eight years ago, we were putting newspaper uh, uh, articles in, in regional papers to try and encourage these guys to come forward, uh, yeah. you know, some of which refused it we know of one guy who, who's recently died who was in dorset we know for absolutely certain he was in new york's units because his name's on the list he still lives in the same bloody house and he's he absolutely refused not only did he not want to talk talk to us he he categorically denied that he was in the york's units that that's how secret they kept it uh that's just we, brilliant though isn't it you gotta have oh, you gotta respect it. that that's brilliant oh, just but, but andrew my, my point my, i mean you know, you know all this sort of taking out of, of of local police commanders and all this kind of stuff, and presumably Mabel would have been for the high jump as well. I mean, <laughs> but but surely their families must have known. I mean, you can't not know if your husband is kind of sort of disappearing off. You know, I'm sorry, darling, I've got to go out. I maybe some time. I mean, well, you know, yeah. When, I, I, we, when we, how can when you we, not know? I've got to go sp- to Swindon for four days. But darling, you're a quarryman. <laughs> yeah, I know, but I, you know, I've got to. When we spoke to them, there were quite a few instances of wives thinking they were having affairs. Uh, certainly, yeah. uh, quite a few got quite a few got white feathers from people who do, didn't think they were doing their bit. But they 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 used the home guard as a as, as a cover. As, as a cover. Yeah. So they would they would right. use that uh, as a way of um, of saying actually I've got to do some special home guard training and then disappear for the weekend. Uh, to to blow something up, um, so it got you. It's it, so that that's the way they got away with it. Got away with it, but you know, yeah, quite a few of them got white feathers because for all all pretense and purposes, these were young men, as we said, thirty five, forty year olds, who hadn't joined the home guard, 
weren't there on on Sunday morning parade at the church. They were just, you know, getting on with their farming. And people think, well, what the heck, you know, we've got all these old blokes doing it. Why aren't you doing your bits? And you know, and, but they literally couldn't. They literally couldn't say anything. We've got a great example in again in Cornwall. Weirdly, we put a we put a story in the Western Morning News. Uh, appealing for these guys to come forward and he was reading the the western morning news or his, i think his grandkid was reading it they were all around for sunday lunch around this table and uh this grandkid went to his granddad look at this this is amazing there's like secret army of underground bases and this granddad went oh yeah i was in that and his wife who he's married to uh during the war was like well no you weren't you weren't in that don't be ridiculous so up he upstairs he goes uh picks up his little lapel badge his fairburn sykes that he kept hidden in a, in a, in a drawer brings it yeah brings it down and is like yeah it was we get that all the time. It's just amazing, you know, just, uh, just got, and, you know, um, we have lots of stories at the end of the war, like VE Day, of, of uh, local villagers who we go and, you know, go and speak to saying, actually, at the end of the war, it's a bit weird. We had this huge fireworks display, uh, all these explosions everywhere. And basically, it was all the Yorkshire units using <laughs> up all these leftover exp- explosives, blowing stuff up. Lots, no, no, lots no, no. of stories of, of farmers, that, that tree in the middle of the field that always got away in the ploughing had mysteriously disappeared uh, overnight in a, in a freak lightning storm. And in fact, they just packed it with explosives and blown the whole thing up. Uh, Amazing. Just, and that's, what, that's kind of what we go off. Because most of them went to the grave without saying anything, we, we have to go on this kind of folklore and, and, and gossip and rumour and, and then try and claw back what, what was actually right. But 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 Andrew, if you know, I mean, the what the the secret wireless um, place in 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 Devon underneath the outdoor privy. I mean, can can one go and see these stuff? I mean, are there any of these um, these old shelters that patrol bases that one can go and see as a member of public, or are they all so kind of secret and kind of don't conform to health and safety executive anymore that you can't? <laughs> well, they they, they definitely. They definitely don't conform to health and safety, uh, but uh, <laughs> they are mainly they're mainly on on private private ground. They're mainly on, in farms and in private woods and, and things like that. So it's quite. A, there are a few around the country that are in uh, are in are in, uh, in public areas which you can visit, but but we don't tend to encourage that because they are essentially they are just and big Anderson shelters and and they're if they haven't rusted through already they're you know we've got lots of yeah. lots of examples of uh cows falling through them in the 50s and 60s or, or a tractor driving over the top <laughs> yeah. and falling through there's yeah. a great example of uh, uh they were widening the road between Exeter and Plymouth uh up a up Holden <laughs> Hill and uh suddenly had this massive JCB digging out digging out and this old bloke running up this really steep hill saying no you better stop now you better stop now because they're just about to dig right through the roof of this OB that had been stacked full of explosives still. This is in the 70s. Just like explosives <laughs> all over this OB. And his JCB was... Uh, so he was, just, he was just running up this hill to try and stop him, to do, stop him from, from doing that. So, so a lot of them, most of them, a lot of them have collapsed and, and, uh, or were blown up at the end of the war. Or farmers, or kids played with them in the 60s and 70s and the council kind of uh, got rid of them because they were just, just dangerous. But there are a few that are... That remain intact. That that, and they just give you. Obviously, the bunks have rotten away, and the you know, the, it's, there's not a lot in there now. But it just gives you a real impression of just how dark and dank and horrible it would have been for that for that fortnight they would have been operating. Not only are you underground without electricity, candlelight, a disgusting chemical toilet, and you know, but you are under real pressure every night, going out, taking on the. The, the the invading army behind their backs very likely to be caught at any moment 
and it's just it's just a horrible <laughs> horrible place really and and it, and you know that's the reason we do what we do is because we feel like they need more public recognition it wasn't until uh six five or six years ago that we we got them permission to to march past the cenotaph on remembrance sunday and obviously the home garden of bevin boys and all those guys had been doing that for, for years and yeah. these guys had had no no recognition of, of 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 what they were doing even though david lamp's book came out in 68 there's still you know every time i speak to someone they have absolutely no no idea no that this idea stuff was going on like the length of the country as well i mean this isn't this isn't just in the southeastern corner this is from the york all the way around to south wales well i i, I mentioned you beforehand that you know i i really sort of first came across it when i was interviewing norman field um uh he'd been at you know in the rolfies liz at um um at dunkirk and and survived that and was was wounded and so just recovered from his wounds and, and knew peter fleming and he said, oh, well, you know, you could be really useful to us to help helping with this. You know, what is this new organisation you're organising? And it turned out to be auxiliary units. And he was one of the kind of the military types sort of training them and sort of getting them all going. So it's fascinating to hear it from him. And he'd been operating in Kent, I think, if I, if I remember That's rightly. Right. Um, yeah. But but it is just absolutely extraordinary. And I, and again, it sort of it sort of throws in the face, doesn't it, of, of the traditional view of sort of all home guard and kind of you know, the Captain Mannerings and, and private exactly. parks and all the rest of it, that actually you have got these people kind of unofficial, clandestine kind of civilians doing, you know, who are, are fit, active, um, ingenious, uh, are fearless, prepared to put their, their their lives on the line for, for something much bigger. And, yeah. and ready to be completely ruthless in the prosecution of... Uh, just unbelievable. The- it's unbelievable. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, and yeah. It's amazing story. So you know, hats off for all the work you're doing. Uh, it just, you know, I'm, I'm. It just makes me want to build one of these, <laughs> one of these issues at the Chalk Valley History Festival. Yeah, it would but, be great. You know, marble. It's the marble. Great. It's the my, marble my, door. My oh, early experience of, 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 of digging down to, to represent history didn't go terribly well when, when our, uh, our, our absolutely pitch-perfect First World War trench got shut down within three minutes by the health and safety executive. So I don't suppose this would have much chance either. <laughs> that's right. We'll, we'll, we'll bring the Royal Engineers down from Durham or somewhere and we'll, we'll get them to dig it. That's no yeah, that's the way to go. Absolutely. That's, that's a brilliant idea. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Andrew. Um, what's the name of your website for people it's, who don't uh, know? It's I mean, staybehinds.com. Staybehinds.com is a fascinating site. Um, uh, you can follow through on a uh, follow up on a lot of the things we've been talking about. So, um, uh, for instance, uh, Coles Hill, um, uh, the Coles Hill estate, you've got a, a plan. You've got every single section of it. Yeah. Um, what went on, where, why Coles Hill, the whole thing. Absolutely fascinating. Yeah, it's a brilliant um, website, actually. It really it's is. It's an excellent you, website. Yeah. People can really, really fill their boots listening to it. Um, one last thing before we go. Do you know if you're related to George Chatterton, who we're into <laughs> on the podcast at the moment? I, I, do you know, I've been, I've been listening and enjoying it. And it's something I, I, I came across uh, George Chatterton years ago because my purely coincidentally, my mother helped a glider pilot called uh, Hugh Carling write his his book uh on his experiences at arnhem and uh hugh couldn't believe that a chatterton was coming to to help him write his book right uh but it, i I've, I've got my mum to double check our family tree and i don't think we are uh which is remarkable right. with the surname chatterton because i just felt i just presumed i was related to all chatterton's but but maybe maybe not <laughs> uh, well really good luck well, with thank- your own book andrew yeah thank you yeah, yeah. good luck with yeah your book. no it should be good so we do it yeah 
orcs units and special duties and then doing uh, this section seven stuff that's just coming out and home guard shock squads and just so many secret layers of defense that, that were home guard places. shock squads okay well that's yeah. for, that's for next time come on again and talk about that yeah very very happy fantastic. to come on yeah I'll be, yeah and talk about more about the the spies and the wireless operators and yeah yeah, there's, there's well, some I know. I'm just sort of stories. thinking of a there's there's a there's a, there's a ca- really good counterfactual novel to be done here, isn't there? <laughs> there is, and it's interesting. A couple of uh, auxiliary unit members a few years ago wrote wrote a kind of counterfactual uh, about what that would look like. Uh, you know, had they what their experiences might have been had they had the Germans invaded, and uh, but there's there's definitely a market for. Uh, for something written perhaps a, a bit better about it. I'm not a big fan of counterfactual history generally. Uh, but no, I'm not at all. But Just, just, yeah, it's just remarkable uh, what these guys were, were, were willing to do. And they had, you know, they had no pretense that this was going to be a long-term operation. This wasn't the French resistance taking occupying force. This was a two-week suicide mission to do as much damage as possible. So, yeah, yeah there amazing. we are. Amazing. Well, well, thank you very much for talking to us, Andrew. Um, as ever, we start, we peel the onion. There's yet another layer. It's the... <laughs> oh, that was Brilliant. superb. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everybody. Cheerio. Cheerio. Thanks for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. There's another history podcast we'd love you to try. It's called The Rest is History, and it's presented by my big brother, Tom Holland, who's a specialist on the ancient world. He's joined by Dominic Sandbrook, who's written extensively on modern history. It's an absolutely cracking listen, roaming the centuries from Pompeii and Troy to an examination of modern Britain and our entrenched north-south divide. Here's a short extract. The rest is history, wherever you get your podcasts. It's remarkable, isn't it, that you know Twitter was created and Facebook and all these things to bring people together which is this sort of constant human ambition. And then straight away, people just use them to tell each other people how horrible and stupid they were. And in a sense, people have always used technology that way, haven't they? I think that if you look at, and this is why I think the parallel is, is so great, and why I think it would be wonderful to kind of do a, a, an entire history of the Reformation uh, with tweets. <laughs> yeah. Because what happens is that Luther obviously dominates the early stages of the Reformation, but um, very rapidly... His abuse generates abuse in turn. Thomas More wrote this incredibly aggressive stuff back at him, didn't he? Yeah, but it also comes from other reformers who start to cast him as a kind of centrist dad and to complain that he's not going far enough. On the scatological theme, Luther is obviously brilliant at that. He's constantly obsessed with his bowels, with excrement. He's always talking about that. This generates further kind of uh, shit-throwing (laughs) <laughs> from um, Thomas Munzer, who is a far more radical figure than Luther, who in, in the great kind of the war against the peasants, Munzer takes the side of the peasants. Luther doesn't. So Munzer is, um, you know, he's using phrases like donkey farts, scrotum-like, diarrhea makers. Um, Since you clearly like drinking shit, I hope you brew beer out of stinking shit, he says. Uh, Priests don't talk enough uh, like that, do they, today? No, no. (laughs) And this is the kind of stuff that he is starting to direct at Luther. So Luther then starts flinging it back. And so it it kind of, it it, it builds and builds and builds. And you can entirely see that in Twitter, that people get radicalised because when you get entrenched positions, people are inevitably driven to attack each other more and more and more. And so it escalates.